Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, it has been described as the starting point for the most consequential stretch of the Biden presidency. Representative Bob Latta shares his reaction to this week's State of the Union address. Also this morning in a two-part throwback Thursday, 6,000 miles to home, a nearly forgotten World War II story about human decency against the backdrop of the Holocaust which draws haunting parallels to the present experience of many families in Ukraine. And the first wave, bringing to life the stories of those Americans who led the way to victory in World War II, a dramatic reminder about the cost of war as dark clouds once again build in Europe. This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Thursday, March 3rd, 2022. So the... Current state of uh, world affairs apparently has many people thinking about worst case scenarios. This is really interesting. The Texas based Doomsday Bunker Company, Rising S Bunkers, reports seeing a huge spike in sales since Russia declared war and invaded Ukraine last week. Well, I don't know if they've actually declared war. I shouldn't say that. I don't know if they formally declared war, but, you know, since the Ukrainian invasion. The uh, general manager of the company, Gary Lynch, says demand for their bunkers has increased 1,000% since February 24th, and they are receiving interest from all over the world. The company sells bunkers of various sizes and costs, which are meant to be buried 11 feet underground and can be outfitted with grow rooms for food. Uh, they also, uh, some of them have fitness centers, elevators, swimming pools even, and more. Lots of options here. The company says all types of people are buying their products from professional athletes to celebrities, tech companies, and they say even politicians. <laughs> I'm not sure that that makes me feel real comfortable <laughs> that politicians are buying underground bunkers after the uh, Ukrainian invasion. What does that tell you? I don't, I don't know. That's that's a little unnerving right there. But uh, yeah, it is good business for some. Uh, elsewhere among the uh, stories, the first things you need to know this morning, the uh, most buzzworthy stories of the day, that being one of them, How about a little happier news? Right now, we could all use a little happiness. So why not move somewhere that will help? WalletHub is out with their 2022 list of the happiest cities in America. They uh, crunched the numbers of 180 of the largest U.S. cities. And in all, they took about 30 different metrics into account ranging from the average amount of leisure time, uh, divorce and depression rates, commute time, all of that. And they calculated the happiest cities in America. Kind of interesting that California has multiple cities in the top 20 in spite of high crime in a number of areas, surging homelessness, and of course the traffic. But nonetheless, uh, ranked on the list of 180 cities in terms of happiness. Uh, let's see here. Do, 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 do. Top 10. 
Fremont, California was number one. Happiest city in America. Columbia, Maryland. San Francisco, California. San Jose, California. Irvine, California. So, what does that make it? Four of the top five in uh, California. Followed by Madison, Wisconsin. Seattle, Washington. Overland Park, Kansas. And then two more California cities rounding out the top ten. Huntington Beach, California. And San Diego, California. Ranked dead last of 180 cities in terms of happiness, Detroit, Michigan. (laughs) Dead last. Um, Pearl City, Hawaii had the lowest depression rate. Uh, So if that is the main metric that you're concerned about, Pearl City is the place to be. And the highest depression rate, Huntington, West Virginia. Um, By the way, kind of interesting, Cleveland, Ohio had the highest separation and divorce rate. I don't have the entire list in front of me here. I'll have to look that up, but I don't know what the top Ohio city is on that uh, list, but none in the top 10, the happiest cities in America. And in general, apparently California is a pretty happy place to be. Uh, One place you do not want to move, do not want to go is New York. They say it's the city that doesn't sleep, but there is a new reason why. A new report says hundreds of New York City residents have made complaints about overly noisy sexual activity in the past year. (laughs) What did we have? We had the story, what is it, a week ago or so, uh, that we are more sensitive to noise now since the beginning of the pandemic. Maybe that has something to do with this. The uh, New York City official helpline got over 277 noise complaints between February 19th of 2021 and February 9th of 2022. And the new site Patch examined all of these calls and they found the complaints ranged from grievances over loud moaning sounds to concerns (laughs) about orgies. (laughs) What? One New Yorker even logged a complaint about their ceiling shaking and debris falling as a result of a particularly active neighbor. (laughs) Uh, It says here, once any noise complaint is logged, the New York City Police Department will respond within eight hours so long as they are not handling other emergencies. But a huge spike in noise complaints due to uh, adult activity in New York City. So... (laughs) I don't know. Does that put them up higher on the list of happiest cities or lower? It depends on your outlook there. (laughs) Depends on what what end of that uh, activity that you're you're on. Anyway, we'll move on. Some of the other most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. Uh, Getting back to the uh, Russia thing, it's really been interesting. All of the companies that have jumped on board the boycotting Russia or... Um, cutting Russia off from the rest of the civilized world. And I think it's amazing in, in multiple respects. Number one, because it seems the entire world is in solidarity uh, with this. And number two, it's amazing the number of ways that we are intertwined internationally with countries like Russia. For example, Electronic Arts 
the video game company, is removing Russian teams from its video games. NHL 2022, uh, 2022, FIFA 2022, FIFA Online and FIFA Mobile. So the hockey and soccer games, they are removing all Russian teams from those games. Uh, both Russian national teams and professional clubs. EA says it has initiated the process for removal, making the decision in line with uh, decisions by the uh, sports organizations themselves in real life, banning uh, Russian participation in those sporting events and uh, competitions. So I, again, not something that you would immediately think about when you talk about restricting Russia kind of removing them and marginalizing them from the rest of the world. But it is one thing. And will it make a big difference in the larger scheme of things? Probably not. But it is symbolic and it is a way to stand in solidarity uh, with the rest of the world and opposing the Ukrainian invasion. And Live Nation is no longer promoting music concerts or conducting any business in Russia. The company said it is joining the world in strongly condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Um, Spotify, another music central company that is announced it is closing its Russian office. The streaming service has also taken steps to restrict searches for shows operated and owned by Russian state media. So, again, whether this has a huge impact or not, you know, probably not, but it is certainly uh, meaningful to those who are, you know, video game enthusiasts and music enthusiasts and all of that might hurt, hit them where it hurts, and music artists and, and all of that kind of it. Uh, let's see. And a couple of other uh, stories here. Among the first things you need to know this morning have nothing to do with, uh, with Russia, but uh, on the lighter side of things, the makers... Of Natural Light Beer, the brand affectionately known as Natty Light, has an offer that you, well, frankly, may be able to refuse. If you get a mullet, (laughs) if you grow a mullet, they will not only cover the cost of your haircut, but you could get free beer for a month. (laughs) If you keep that... Business up front, party in the back, look, going all year long. The beer will keep flowing, too. For a chance to win, post a photo of your Kentucky waterfall, Mississippi mud flap, or whatever mullet you choose between now and the end of the month with the hashtag Natty Vintage and hashtag Sweepstakes. Uh, you need to get the haircut first, and Natural Light will select 200 lucky people to repay the uh, the cost, reimburse the cost of the cut, and a free month of beer. Uh, those lucky winners get a chance to keep the beer coming if they keep the mullet until the end of the year. <laughs> I thought to myself, you talk about a company that knows its audience right there. That's, <laughs> that's it. Although, I have to say, that uh, corporate promotion may be better than this one. Fruity Pebbles Cereal is teaming up with Nike and LeBron James to introduce, are you ready for this? The new Nike LeBron James 19 Low Magic Fruity Pebbles shoe. 
and the new Magic Fruity Pebbles cereal. The shoe actually features photography of the images of the Magic Pebbles, the red and yellow cereal flakes, on the shoe. And the cereal features those aforementioned red and yellow flakes that magically turn your milk purple. They say they taste the same as regular Fruity Pebbles. The new cereal can be found at select retailers nationwide beginning March 7th. So we have something to look forward to. Or not. I I don't know. Do we need a Fruity Pebbles cereal uh, or a Fruity Pebbles shoe? Or do we need a cereal that is that closely associated with a shoe? It just doesn't sound... <laughs> I'm just wondering who came up with this. Uh, I, again, I don't know which is, uh, which is worse or which is better. The, uh, Natty Light Mullet Contest or the LeBron James Nike Fruity Pebble Shoe and Cereal Combo. You decide. There you go. Some of the uh, most interesting and buzzworthy stories, for better or worse, to get your Thursday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather, partly to mostly sunny skies today with a high of 35, just a few clouds tonight, a low of 21. A man who was accused of firing a shotgun at a Hancock County Sheriff's Office deputy was in court for the reading of the verdict in his trial. 52-year-old Ronald Dean Lauk of Arlington was facing a charge of felonious assault and a charge of intimidation in connection with the August 2020 incident. On Wednesday, Lauk was found not guilty of the felonious assault charge and guilty of the intimidation charge. He could get up to six years behind bars when he's sentenced at the end of this month. Get more on the case on the website. Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission approved a new four-year congressional map despite pleas from Democrats to work towards a bipartisan solution. The Columbus Dispatch reports the new map would help the GOP hold on to at least 10 of 15 seats and win as many as 13 in a solid Republican year. The Ohio Supreme Court must now decide whether the lines violate anti-gerrymandering language in the Ohio Constitution, approved overwhelmingly by voters in 2018. Without maps, Ohioans can't vote on state house and congressional races on the May 3rd primary. Daniel Barnett, ONN News. A nurse from Ohio sat with First Lady Jill Biden during the president's State of the Union on Tuesday night. Rafen Joro says it was a little nerve-wracking to represent Ohio and the Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center as a COVID nurse, but she was glad to hear the president address the COVID challenges and how far the country's come in two years. It's exciting. I mean, coming from Ohio and we're invited to, you know, the, one of the biggest events and, and, you know, part of a history. That's ONN's Tracy Townsend reporting. Finley Mayor Christina Mern is inviting people to attend one of the Move Finley Forward workshops and share their ideas for the city's new strategic plan. It's really important for us to hear from the citizens. What are the, the hot button issues that they care about? What are the things that they want to see in their community in years to come? The mayor says the workshops, which will be held in early April, are an opportunity to share your ideas and make Findlay an even better place than it already is. Get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. We'll start off this morning with our high school basketball preview. I know it's something we normally do on Fridays, but you get into the tournament and the games don't always fall on the same days as the regular schedule. So tonight, 
The uh, Trojans will meet up with Perrysburg in the district semifinals. Our John Marshall spoke with head coach Jim Rookie last night about the game on the Coach's Corner program. Last Saturday, you earned a big sectional final win over Anthony Wayne, 77-47, coming off a long break. It was a real nice performance from your team. Yeah, I thought we played very well. Uh, we, we came out with energy from the start, uh, shot the ball really well, and uh, just didn't play great defensively in the first quarter, but after that, buckled down, and uh, it's a pretty good four-quarters effort. Sam Weirau had a really good game scoring, 19 points, pulling down seven rebounds. Sam, I understand, is a motor guy from all accounts, a player who is all about working hard for the team. It's really nice to see him have a game where he leads the attack. Yeah, he, he, he's a tremendous competitor, and uh, he, he was the recipient of some great execution on our part uh, by the team in general, and uh, Max Roth hit him with some great passes, and uh, Max had eight assists Saturday, and probably uh, man, six or seven of them might have been to Sam, and uh, he converted around the basket against some bigger guys, shot faked, and uh, was strong, and um, it's a career high, nice night for him. Now we turn our attention to Perrysburg. You played a lot of the same teams, but you haven't met this season. They have a nice record with only three losses, once to Toledo Central Catholic and twice to Sylvania Northview. What do you know about the Yellow Jackets? Well, we've seen quite a bit. They're, they're, uh, you know, we played them last year, and they have pretty much everybody back from that team. So um, they're very long, really good size across the board. They're going to start 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", 6'6", with a 6'5", kid first off the bench, and a couple little guards that can shoot it. Uh, but they're going to be very organized. They, uh, Dave Boyce, longtime coach there, does a really nice job. They're going to run stuff and uh, make us work. And um, uh, they, they've obviously had a really good season. They, they think they were building toward this year for a couple of years, and um, they, you know, they they knew they would be, you know, just a, a little bit down last year, playing a lot of young guys, and they were doing that to build for this year and. It'll be, a, it'll be a tough one, but we're going to be ready to go. You've only played one game in the last 12 days. That went fine for you last week. Has this been an opportunity to work out maybe a few kinks, rest up, and heal up from the little nagging injuries that come from playing a full season? Well, we, we've tried to take it easy a little bit in practice at this time of year. We're going to shorten things down and keep guys fresh. So you know, we played Saturday. We took Sunday off. We've had three... Uh, uh, Nice practices, short, a little bit shorter than normal, and uh, try to sharpen a few things up, and, and we're ready to go. Really looking forward to seeing what you can do with this one. Thanks for your time, as always, and good luck tomorrow night. All right, thanks a lot, John. Again, uh, the uh, Trojans and the Perrysburg Yellow Jackets tonight. Airtime is 5.15 for the district semifinals here on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. Because that is an early tip, uh, we will go right from the... Uh, Finley-Perrysburg game, the Trojans game, straight into Ohio State basketball. Following that, uh, the Buckeyes hosting Michigan State tonight, and uh, you will hear that one on WFIN as well, by the way. Kind of interesting, uh, John, talking with uh, Coach Rookie about the fact that 
it's only been a couple of days, a couple of games in in 12, 12 day stretch. Should the Trojans advance, they would then turn around and uh, meet probably, most probably Lima Senior uh, in the uh, district title game uh, Saturday afternoon. That would be a two o'clock tip off. That's another thing with this uh, tournament. It's been weird. Uh, some of the uh, the times you had the uh, one o'clock tip off uh, for the uh, Trojans first tournament game at one o'clock in the afternoon tip off uh, and then a long wait you've got the uh, the uh, district semi on a Thursday and then a Saturday afternoon tip fortunately if the Trojans advance and if Lima senior advances uh, those uh, that's a team that uh, Finley is familiar with so not a whole lot of preparation uh, necessarily would need to be involved uh, with that but uh, in any event Get, don't want to get ahead of ourselves. Finley and Perrysburg tonight. Again, 515 is airtime. Also, we've got more high school tournament basketball action across our family of stations. Uh, the game tonight, uh, both on 100.5 WKXA and 106.3 The Fox, Liberty Benton takes on Ottawa Glandorf from Lima Senior High School. Here, the uh, BVC uh, flavor of the call over on WKXA and uh, the OG perspective on 106.3 The Fox, and that is a 5.30 tip-off as well. And then uh, best of luck tomorrow to the OG girls. The uh, Lady Titans will uh, face Worthington Christian, and that is uh, a 7 p.m. tip uh, tomorrow not sure where that game is, but I believe that one will be on the Fox as well. So you can follow all of the area games, all of the teams uh, that are left around the region from our scoreboard page, powered by ScoreStream, presented by Owens Community College. Uh, that is at WFIN.com slash scoreboard and also linked up at uh, goodmornings.net. And, of course, catch the Coach's Corner Wednesday evenings at 6, live from Ralphie's or anytime on demand at WFIN.com. And now we'll get to our cover story this morning. It has been described as the starting point for the most consequential stretch of the Biden presidency. Representative Bob Latta is with us on the line this morning with his reaction to this week's State of the Union address. Congressman, first of all, thanks very much for uh, taking the time this morning. We appreciate it. Uh, I, I'm curious, did you attend the uh, State of the Union uh, on Tuesday? Uh, yes, I did. Because it seemed like I, I know that there was no restriction uh, on the or no limit on the number of uh, individuals, but it seemed like, and I was mentioning this the other day, that uh, there were uh, a number of empty seats that uh, maybe some of your uh, colleagues uh, did not attend. Um, and and I I wonder is is that a, a good thing? I, I I really wish that we could get back to the point where we have that that packed house because this is such an important uh, moment uh, in our political discourse. Uh, it, it just seems appropriate to have everybody in the same room, even if you don't agree with what the president has to say, to at least hear him out to respect the office enough uh, uh, to that. Well, a big part of the problem was the, was the speaker. She limited how many people could be on the floor, and she said he had to sit in every other seat. So it was right on. So then okay. uh, members sat in the gallery, as she didn't see probably members of city up in the gallery of the house. I see. But it was ridiculous. But I tell you, it was ridiculous because beforehand well, everybody's standing around talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and and uh, you know they're talking so, about. And then they say, 
yeah. we were supposed to sit next to each other, but yeah. you had you had people clustered, yeah. 10, 15 people groups before we started. Yeah, exactly. And, and, but this is, this is just nonsense from the speaker. And, and hopefully uh, that we can uh, put all of that to rest. That was one of the things that the president talked about, and I want to get back to that here in just a moment. Obviously, the first part of the, ste- the president's speech on Tuesday um, – was focused on the uh, situation in Ukraine. That was the part that drew uh, the most bipartisan reaction. Uh, what were your thoughts on what the president had to say and how he has handled this crisis to this point? Well, first of all, uh, you know, this is a total unprovoked attack, and it's, this is something people are watching unfold before their eyes on television. And, you know, the question is, what's, what's Russia's endgame? You know, what's this dictator's endgame? And it's to take over a sovereign, independent, democratic nation. And uh, he, it's, a, it's a total land grab because the Ukraine is known as the uh, breadbasket of Europe. Right. They, they export, uh, and their, their numbers are like number four and five when it comes to wheat and corn production. Uh, they have a lot of rare minerals there. So this guy's out there to do one thing, grab that country. And, you know, when the president spoke, uh, when he brought out the first uh, set of sanctions, you know, most of us on our side, if not all of us, thought it should have been more forceful. Because the first thing, you know, when you're talking about sanctions, and you're talking about, well, we'll look at it in a month to see how things are going. This work, this, this thing could have been over in a week. And uh, so, you, you know, you got to put things on hard and fast uh, quickly. You know, and so I'm glad to see that he's come around, especially with SWIFT, and this is where you know money transactions go through across the bank transactions mm-hmm. across the world. Right. Right. You know, he he hesitated on that early on, but uh, you know, but the world, you know, everybody's falling in line, saying, "No, we got to do these things." And uh, you know, when you you know other countries start saying no fly to Russian airlines, and then we finally got on board. Uh, but uh, you know, the what you have to look at is where the Russians are getting the money to finance this war. And it's oil. It's natural gas. And so it's good to see that Nord Stream 2, the Germans are, you know, pretty much said it's dead now. That's how you're going to, they're going to bring natural gas into into Europe. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, we're, we're, you know, you have to say, okay, so where's the money come from? You know, most Americans probably don't believe, could believe this, but we imported 245 million barrels of Russian oil last year alone. Which, you know, if you take it just by an average of what the overall cost of a barrel of oil with uh, Brent, the Brent number is, that'd be about $70 a barrel, which means uh, we gave them over $17 billion. It's $17 billion to help them, you know, invade Ukraine. Every time oil prices are down, you never see Putin doing anything. But when oil prices are high, he's getting money in his pocket, then he's doing something around the world. And that's why I introduced legislation to ban the importation of Russian oil, yeah, because we've got to stop it. And uh, the, re- the rest of the world's got to get their reliance off of them. And by doing it, it you will take down this guy when he doesn't have the money to, to go around uh, Europe or any places else in the world and create havoc. 
After the comments on Ukraine and the State of the Union, the president segued to domestic issues and uh, talked about uh, his plans to address inflation, which he uh, listed as his top priority. Uh, but I think uh, it's clear that that was the weakest part of the president's speech, uh, which is unfortunate because that's the uh, unfortunate for the president, because uh, that is certainly what is top of mind for every American right right now you know you're absolutely correct because i, I actually took notes i saw that I write everything down just to make sure i hadn't missed anything and i remember remarking to a member i said did, did i just hear what he just said when he said it when he's talking about inflation and again you're absolutely right that inflation is the number one issue on americans minds out there at 7.5 percent inflation rate it ate up everybody's uh, pay increases they got from last year and actually still went in the hole but what the president said was, and I couldn't believe it, he said his answer to inflation was lower cost. Lower right. cost. And it's like, well, wait, wait a minute, what do you mean by that? Because first of all, the problem that we got into this thing for like last year is when they spent $2 trillion, almost $2 trillion on a quote-unquote COVID relief package that was less than 10% for COVID relief and not one Republican voted for it. And they keep spending money. The American people know that if the federal government keeps spending, then we're going to be in a real problem. And so, uh, you know, we've got, uh, again, inflation at a high supply chain, a disaster out there. And, uh, you know, his answer for, you know, uh, and he also blames on everybody else. He said, well, these greedy companies, they shouldn't be making money. Well, what? No. <laughs> I look around my district and I haven't heard problems with companies out there. The problem is, is that when you have uh, inflation at the highest that we've seen in 40 years with, um, and with government spending right along with it at the highest you've ever seen it, then uh, yeah, it, we're going to have a problem. And so but the, problem, the problem is the president's got to say, you know what, we've got to cut some spending here. But his, his other solution is we're just going to have to raise taxes. It is a fair point that uh, government spending is a uh, significant contributor to uh, the inflationary pressures that we are seeing right now. But there are a lot of other uh, uh, p components to that that are contributing to this rapid run up in prices. How much of that can be controlled from a governmental level? Well, you know, first, uh, if you start uh, cutting back on federal spending, that's the first thing you got to look at. you got to say, look, we, we, we just can't keep this up because, you know, as you and I talked in the past, if this, if this if our country is going to have to pay a trillion dollars a year just to pay interest on the debt, that we, I mean, that's the first thing you're going to have to pay. You're going to have to pay the interest. We're going to come up with a trillion dollars to pay interest. Mm -hmm. And so all these things are being factored in. And, you know, uh, I know I've had people say, you know, I'm about the only person sometimes just talking about this interest issue we're going to be facing because uh, yesterday, in fact, I had uh, folks in from our local banks and also another group from our local uh, credit unions and brought it up to them. Just think what's going to happen in less than 10 years if uh, you as a, uh, a consumer goes to a, uh, you know, to a financial institution Right. And you want to borrow money, and all of a sudden you can't do it because you know people. It hasn't been that long ago when when Jimmy Carter was president. We had twenty one and a half percent interest rate, yeah. and it crushed the economy. Yeah, nobody wants and, to go know, back to that. No, no, and you know, and you talk about things that the president really didn't talk about. You know, he didn't talk about Afghanistan, what happened there. He didn't talk about really the southern border, and you know that you know massive humanity coming into this country illegally. 
And then he also didn't talk about the drugs. And, you know, we had 101,000 people die from drug overdose. He didn't talk about 11 million pounds of fentanyl that, that they were able to catch. Yeah. They would have killed well, every American sometimes over. So <laughs> there's, a, there's so many things he didn't talk. It was almost like... So he did it's actually. Like he talked for. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was going to say he did actually bring up the uh, opioid uh, uh, epidemic. Uh, he he as part of what he called uh, the unity agenda. His he referred to it. Uh, the things that uh, he believes that those from both sides of the aisle can agree on the opioid epidemic uh, also talked about mental health, especially uh, children's mental health, veterans issues and the fight against cancer uh, with respect to that. And that actually kind of leads to the final question I wanted to ask you as, as he was saying, let's work on those things that we can agree on. Are those things that everyone can agree on and, and can there be some bipartisan movement on those issues? Well, you know, I, I you know, when I was writing my notes, you know, when I get when he, talk about drugs, I put underneath it, you know, pretty much no answers. He didn't, he, he, because it's almost like he did a checklist. He thought, okay, they told me, okay, you're going to have 30 seconds to talk about all these different things. Just check them out. You checked all these boxes. Yeah. And, uh, when it, but, but, but when it comes to drugs, again, how the way, and you know, they don't want to admit this. If you're going to stem the flow of fentanyl, meth, heroin, cocaine, marijuana into this country, you've got to defend the Southern border. This is where the stuff's flowing in from. And he doesn't want to do it. And so you're not going to uh, stop uh, a war on drugs when you take, you know, when I was down there in May, 40% of our Border Patrol people offline, they have them sitting behind desks processing people. Yeah. And they're not out, they can't go out and do their job. So, you know, there's so many things that he, he didn't talk, you know, about. And when he did, it was almost like we, we were talking about it yesterday. It was almost like they had this long checklist. This, okay, you got 30 seconds to talk about this. Mm-hmm. This thing just keep right. going. And, and it just, but, uh, you know, when it comes to offering solutions, uh, you know, saying you're going to work together, that's easy. He hasn't worked together with us at all. A, f- a fair a fair point that it is uh, very uh, interesting to note not just what was in the speech but what was not in the speech uh, again we'll have to leave it there representative Bob Latta with us uh, this morning reaction to this week's State of the Union address which as we mentioned has been described by a lot of political observers as the starting point for the most consequential stretch of the Biden presidency and if that's true not necessarily it was a, kind of a kind of an inauspicious start shall we say uh, to be kind uh, Congressman, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it. Well, have, have a wonderful day. Thanks very much. We have a two-part Throwback Thursday feature for you this morning, inspired by world events of the past couple of weeks. Flashback to World War II certainly will forever be one of the most studied and most written about periods of history. And there are the seminal moments that everyone knows about that conflict. Pearl Harbor, D-Day, Operation Barbarossa, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union. And that one provides the backdrop for much of this story. The book is called 6,000 Miles to Home. It is a novel inspired by a true story of a family trying to escape that invasion in World War II. Kind of ironic that it's a story about a family trying to escape an invasion uh, into the Soviet Union and the parallels to the present-day experience of many Ukrainian families trying to escape the invasion of Russia, uh, the the parallels are uh, rather haunting.
Back in November of 2018, we spoke with author Kim Dana Kupperman. Kim, how did you come across this story? I was approached by a descendant of the family to write this story because he was very worried that the story would be lost over time and that his family would not know the entire story. And one thing basically led to another, and now we have a novel that is based on this story. And the reason why it's a novel is very simple. There were no diaries, there were no letters, there were only very succinct accounts about the experience. There were no in-depth interviews, we Mm -hmm. didn't have a lot of information. And so to dramatize the story, basically we put it into the form of a novel so that it would have a dramatic arc, but we relied on every available fact and very, very many primary sources. So I had to fill in some blanks there uh, with respect to the story. And and tell us a little bit about it. It begins in 1939 uh, as uh, Hitler's forces invade Western Poland, right? Yes. So the story basically tells what happened to this family as soon as Hitler invaded Western Poland, which is where they lived. Uh, In fact, the war began in a town known in German as Gleiwitz. There was an incident at the radio station there, and that's where the war began very early in the morning on September 1st. Mm And the family fled to Warsaw. They survived the siege of Warsaw, which was no mean feat considering the relentless bombing that was unleashed on the city by the Nazis. They then fled Warsaw to a town located in Ukraine, but at the time was Poland, only to realize that the Soviets were invading from the east. And this was part of the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact, which was a secret pact between Nazi Germany and Stalinist Soviet Union to basically carve up Poland into, quote-unquote, spheres of influence. The father was arrested by the Soviets for the crime of being a business owner. He was incarcerated in a prison, and uh, several months later, his wife and two teenage children were deported to a forced labor camp in northern Russia. And this is part of Polish history that 1.5 to 2 million Polish citizens were deported into the Soviet gulag during the war. Then the Nazis invade the USSR, and the release (laughs) of uh, those prisoners is negotiated. Yes, and the Polish government in exile negotiated the formation of a Polish free army on Soviet soil. And what they did was they uh, headed that army by a man named General Anders. He was incredibly prescient. He knew that Stalin would go back on his word. He knew that Stalin's plan was to send these Polish soldiers to the front where they would surely die because They were being released from forced labor camps where they were starving and disease-ridden. And so what he did was he basically negotiated their evacuation from the Soviet Union. And uh, this took the family, which by this time consisted only of the mother and her two children, this took them across Central Asia, across the Caspian Sea to Iran. And once they were in Iran, uh, the British... 
army outfitted this Polish army. The young man, who he had become a young man by this time in the family, mm-hmm. went off to war. He became a decorated war hero. And the mother and daughter stayed in Tehran in a refugee camp until they were taken into the home of a very generous Persian Jewish man. He wound up marrying the daughter. Hmm. And their oldest son is the person who wanted to tell this story to the whole world. Wow. And that's why we have the book. And obviously, uh, you deal very heavily in the logistics of the story, if you will, the nuts and bolts, the facts uh, mm-hmm. of the of the historical record uh, of the story. But you also, uh, in the book, again, as we say, it is a novel uh, because there are a lot of mm-hmm. uh, fill-in-the-blanks type of things. But you also uh, talk very much about the human side of the story. I mean, here again, you have this family, uh, again, as the book uh, title implies, 6,000 miles uh, away from home, uh, trying to make sense of all of this. Yes, I think of all of the testimonies I read, I realized several things. If you survive this experience, it is because someone somewhere along the line showed you a small or large act of kindness. I think that's, that is probably the one factor that resonated with me across all of the testimonies I read, was that somewhere along the line, someone had been kind to the person, and thus they survived. And uh, to put that into context, it wasn't just one person in Iran who was kind to this family. Iranians came out of their homes offering baskets of food to these Polish refugees who were starving. They were emaciated, they were disease-ridden, and the Persians came forward, both Jewish and Muslim alike, to welcome these people into their country and to help sustain them. So on one level, you have uh, this uh, story of uh, human decency and, and great humanity in the midst of World War II and the, and the Holocaust and, and all of that, it, it, this uh, story of decency and of human kindness uh, against that monstrous evil as the backdrop, but also it becomes uh, something of a, uh, a parable for the modern day, in a sense. I absolutely agree with that. I think that if we can turn around and look squarely at what is wrong in the world and give something of ourselves, it can be small, it can be large, it can be $2, it can be a room in our home, it can be going to a soup kitchen, it can be any of those things. It can be educating others. That's the other piece of it. No matter what we do, I think we can promote this act of kindness amongst humans um, in very many ways. It's not hard to do. Yeah, and if it can happen once, especially in the kind of scenario that you're talking about in the book, certainly it can happen uh, again. Maybe that is the uh, enduring lesson here. 6,000 Miles to Home, a novel inspired by a true story of World War II. Kim Dana Kupperman is the author. Do you have a website uh, where folks can get more information about the book? Yes, absolutely. It's kimdanakupperman.com. Kim, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. Certainly, best of luck with the book. Thank you so much. Take care. Really fascinating to uh, hear uh, all of the 
many of the same players that we're uh, hearing in today's headlines, uh, the Soviet Union, of course, now Russia, Ukraine, Poland, and of course, Iran, very different nation now than it was then, but interesting uh, to be pulled into that whole uh, narrative as well. Again, some haunting similarities, some haunting parallels to the present day experience of many Ukrainian families uh, that are trying to escape uh, the advancing Russian troops now. They say, as we were mentioning earlier, they say history repeats itself. Uh, Let's just hope that uh, that's not true in the larger sense. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. Today's update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. Police have arrested a woman in Frackville, Pennsylvania, who they claim had two men dig up the grave of her late boyfriend and steal the urn containing his ashes. <laughs> now, that doesn't sound like a particularly bright thing to do. You know what I mean? That just doesn't seem... But Nicole Chester, age 33, has been charged with one felony count of institutional vandalism and one misdemeanor count of theft, receiving stolen property, intentional desecration of a public monument and possession of drug paraphernalia. Why did I not know? How did I not know that there were (laughs) probably drugs involved in this? Uh, Police say the incident came to light on June 21st of last year when Kimberly Mentuski reported an urn containing the ashes of her brother-in-law was possibly stolen from his gravesite. She said the remains were dug up shortly after burial. Uh, Ms. Mentuski told police she believed that Ms. Chester was involved. She kind of had a feeling that uh, her uh, her, uh, family members, her brother-in-law's girlfriend, ex-girlfriend, might have been involved in this. And it turned out she was right. The arresting officer contacted the adult probation officer who was supervising Ms. Chester and asked if he had seen the urn in her home. As it turns out, the probation officer said he had seen it just sitting on a table when he had last, when he had last visited her. her home. It was just sitting there on the table. <laughs> Woo! Her preliminary hearing in the case is scheduled for next week. Wow. Uh, Let's see. Some interesting animal stories in the broken news today. A cow, a cow carried away by floodwaters in Australia was found wandering a beach after floating down a river. The confused cow was spotted wandering this past Tuesday on Durinbob Beach near Coolangatta, Queensland in Australia. Uh, the cow is believed to have been carried away from its home by floodwaters and washed up in the area after floating more than three miles down the Tweed River from a farm in the uh, Terranora area. Police responded to the beach and were keeping crowds a safe distance away from the bovine. Animal rescuers were contacted to help come up with a plan to relocate the cow. Now, that's a serious flood right there. We can carry away a cow. <laughs> the cow probably looking around saying, what the heck am I doing on this beach? What is 
is all of this? Uh, at least one of two runaway pigs in Florida is back home with its owner. A pair of pigs broke free from their backyard pen in Lee Acres and uh, led their owners and neighbors on a chase that lasted for hours. The Lee County Sheriff's Office even got involved with a deputy helping one of the owners corral one of the pigs after he was finally able to get a hold of it. One neighbor described the pigs as friendly and rather hungry after he encountered them early on in their escape. I'm thinking this is something you would see at a county fair, not something that... <laughs> chasing pigs all over town. It's a little... It's a rather unusual call to police. Speaking of uh, police with unusual calls, um, <laughs> this is... Uh, if you're doing something sketchy, this is the moral of this story. If you're doing something sketchy, you should probably do your best not to get pulled over at a traffic stop. Police in Texas uh, pulled over 64-year-old uh, Imundo Rendon recently for a traffic violation. This was in uh, Flatonia, Texas. Uh, they searched his vehicle and found a bag containing three boxes of children's toys. Nothing to see here, right? Except that they thought that the boxes seemed too heavy. Opened them up to find vacuum-sealed bundles of cash that were consistent with that of drug trafficking and money laundering organizations. Mr. Rendon has been charged with money laundering between $150,000 and $300,000. It is a felony count. And all because he was pulled over for a traffic stop. <laughs> Sometimes you just get lucky if you're the cops. That's... Uh, let's see here. Authorities are currently, and this is in uh, India, authorities are currently investigating how a nine-year-old boy snuck onto a plane in an attempt to run away from home. <laughs> Kids in all cultures at one point. Everybody does it, uh, every boy does it once. Um, it runs away from home. This happens across all cultures. But this kid snuck onto a plane and flew 1,500 miles away from his home in India. Um, well, actually, it was, I'm sorry, I was thinking it was from India to Brazil. It was the other, other way around. He was from Brazil, Brazilian boy, flew to India 1,500 miles away from home on Latham Airlines. They want to know how he did it. Apparently, as uh, the story is being reported, the uh, kid Googled how to get on a plane untouched. I didn't know you could, you can Google just about anything, apparently. It worked because he went unnoticed until the flight was already in transit. That's when the flight crew notified the Federal Police and Guardianship Council. Uh, his mother reported him missing the morning of February 26th, but it wasn't notified until 10 p.m. about her son's whereabouts. The uh, boy spent the night with the Guardianship Council and was on a flight home the next day. So, Wow. That is amazing. Snuck onto a flight 1,500 miles away from home. I remember when I was a little kid, I was lucky if I got to the next block before I got rounded up by my parents. Every kid does it once. And how about this in the uh, broken news? This just seems like a really bad idea. Uh, this story was shared online uh, on the uh, online bulletin board Reddit. 
Mann recently admitted that he changed his newborn's middle name after he and his wife disagreed on it. <laughs> he he, uh, he said previously his wife, his wife had said she would decide the middle names of both their children because she was the one that carried them. So she wanted to decide. They, they could compromise. They could come up with a compromise solution on the baby's given name, but she wanted dibs on naming on, on the middle name, which seems reasonable. And uh, he says he was fine with it until his grandmother passed away. Uh, he said, I asked her if we could give the baby my grandmother's middle name, and she said no. We had a fight, an argument about it, but I gave up. But then the nurse came in with the paperwork while his wife was asleep and asked if they had a name picked out. And he said yes, and he filled out the form and put his grandmother's middle name on the form while his wife was asleep. He said later we got into a huge fight and she claimed she would be changing it, but she can't because you need both parents to sign off on a name change and he won't do it. He said it's been three days and my wife is giving me the silent treatment. No kidding. No, no kidding. He said uh, even his family said it was a cruel thing to do. So even his family is on her side. Man, oh man, not a smart thing to do. There you go. Uh, that is today's broken news report. This update on the odd and unusual side of the news brought to you as a public service, more or less, of Hancock County Veteran Services. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. The high school basketball postseason happens here on WFIN. Follow all the action as your sports authority travels down the tournament trail. This is Tim Montgomery. Join us Thursday afternoon at 5.30 as the Trojans take on Perrysburg. Tournament basketball is here on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com, and 95.5 FM. And now your daily download, the numbers behind the news, the statistics that shape our lives. Some interesting uh, numbers here and a fascinating question in a new survey. Are you friends with any of your exes? Just 8% of those in this uh, survey, this new YouGov survey, just 8% say they are friends with an ex-partner, an ex-romantic flame. 51% say they are not friends with any of their I'm sorry, let's let's try that again. 8% say that they are friends with their exes. 51% say they are not friends with any of their ex-partners. 37% say they are friends with one or some of their exes. And then when you break it down, this is what I found to be interesting. The study finds men more likely than women to stay friends with at least one of their former partners. And people who said they did the dumping were more likely to say that they would prefer to remain friends with an ex compared to those who were dumped. Probably not surprising in that respect. Some other findings in the survey, 40% say that they return their ex's possessions after a breakup. 20% unfollow their ex on social media. 16% delete their ex's number from their phone. And 14% 
say they delete all photos of their partner after a breakup. And these days, that can be a pretty significant undertaking. You know what I mean? <laughs> Usually, they have a lot of photos these days. Now to the second part of our special two-part Throwback Thursday feature this morning. Earlier, you remember we were talking about the story of a family trying to escape the Soviet uh, Union, the Nazi invasion of the Soviet Union in World War II, drawing parallels to the present-day experience of many Ukrainian families. Sticking with the World War II theme and the parallels we can draw, of course, Uh, December 7th, 1941, the day that will live in infamy. The other big day uh, for many when you talk about World War II is June 6th, 1944, the day of the D-Day invasion of Normandy that marked the beginning of the end of the reign of Nazi Germany and World War II in Europe. In 2019, to mark the 75th anniversary of the D-Day invasion, author and historian Alex Kershaw released a book called The First Wave, The D-Day Warriors Who Led the Way to Victory in World War II. And now, with dark clouds building once again in Europe, it is a dramatic reminder about the cost of war. From May of 2019, it is the second part of today's Throwback Thursday. You have said in previous interviews that there is something very specific about the European theater in World War II that holds a particular interest, a particular fascination for you. Um, I'm 53 years old. I grew up in England. I left when I was 28. I've lived in the U.S. for 25 years, mm-hmm. and I have spent my entire life in enjoying freedom and prosperity and democracy in Europe, and that was bought by the sacrifice of 140,000 American working-class lives in World War II, as well as many others from the Allied Nations. I owe my entire life that I've enjoyed in Europe uh, has been the, the privileges were bought by, mm. by warriors who fought in World War II. Yeah. Uh, your books are known for telling unique stories from a unique perspective, uh, but, but D-Day is such a well-known event. So much has been written about this uh, already. What what is there to add that hasn't already been documented? Well, it's a very good question. I don't think there's a great deal to add apart from developing personal stories and, and, and really going into the, 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 the personal detail, uh, trying to bring out the human drama. So what I tried to do was to say, hey, um, unashamedly, I'm going to celebrate the 10 characters, 10 combat commanders who, who carried out the most difficult missions on D-Day. I'm going to show just what it took, and I'm going to go second by second in some cases and show the level of heroism, the sacrifice, the reality yeah. and brutality of war. I'm going to really unashamedly celebrate the guys who got the job done. And what's interesting, and, and it really brings home the point, that these are average, ordinary people who did these extraordinary things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of them had never been in combat before. One yeah. of them, a guy called John Spaulding, who led the first Americans off Omaha Beach, had never fired a bullet in anger, and yet achieved the, the almost unimaginable. Um, took, took Americans off the bloodiest beach on D-Day, where over 900 were killed. He did that first, the first American young combat leader to do that. So, yeah, I wanted to show that um, ordinary, ordinary civilians 
can be thrust into situations where they have to wear a uniform and then lead others and mm-hmm. can perform miracles. And as we mentioned, you know, one of the things that your books are famous for is uh, the, the perspective or the way that you tell these. So this is not a historical, just a historical text. Uh, this really, it's a narrative style, reads like a novel, even though it is nonfiction. And there's a specific reason for that. Yes, because this is a fantastic story, and these are amazing people, and I think that most people do not want to read a long Wikipedia entry. They want to be (laughs) entertained and told a story, and I think that, you know, America has always, the U.S. in particular, has always had a fantastic nonfiction narrative historians, uh, David McCullough, um, people like Stephen Ambrose have done this very, very well. It's a, you know, I want people to keep turning the pages. I I want it to be inspiring and moving and i want people to actually feel like they're almost there and uh that's that's the job that's why and sometimes why we do it and sometimes you have to remind yourself that it is not a novel that it is in fact (laughs) uh uh, history you know real life history you mentioned a couple of the uh, individuals who are these d-day warriors that you profile in this book um, first American to wade ashore on Utah Beach at 628, Leonard Schroeder, F Company, 4th Infantry Division, John Spaulding, John um, Strezik, uh, the first American to put his boots on the ground in Normandy was a guy called Captain Frank Lilliman from upstate New York. Um, they were all part of this first wave of combat commanders who really faced the highest stakes. They were most likely to die, um, so therefore the drama becomes even more intense. Not only are they most likely to be killed, but if they get killed, then failure ensues, and the mission is, uh, is you know, doesn't work out. Uh, you know, they had to carry out these missions. If we hadn't succeeded, then D-Day wouldn't have, wouldn't have been a success. So, high stakes, longest odds. Pretty incredible stories. How did you get? Uh, all of this uh, this information. I mean, you talk about the the research that goes into telling these stories in such great detail. Well, I've been walking the battlefield for over twenty years, and I lead um, battlefield tours for the World War Two Museum. So, a lot of on the ground research. Um, I've been lucky enough to have interviewed veterans for over twenty years. I wrote the Bedford Boys back in two thousand and three. Mm-hmm. So um, that was a story of the most decimated unit um, on D-Day. Uh, a lot of kids from the small town of Bedford, Virginia were killed. 19 were killed in the first wave on D-Day. So I've been lucky enough, very privileged to have met a lot of veterans and listened to them. I've been on the beaches themselves with first wave veterans. Um, a lot of reading and just, you know, being, I think the biggest challenge was just being able to pick the key characters, pick yeah. the 10 guys that were going to be most fun and most moving to follow, most where I could get some real depth who had been interviewed at great length before or who I could interview at great length so that yeah. I could have that psychological and emotional depth. And it takes a lot, that, you know, because I want to put you in their minds, I want to put you in their hearts, I want them to have dialogue, I want you to actually to be there. So you do need a lot of research, a lot of material at hand mm-hmm. to be able to bring those scenes to life, you yeah. know. And uh, it's such a such powerful stories and such a powerful event. Talk about D-Day itself. I mean, w- what are your impressions about the significance of that event? Not just in the obvious terms. I mean, what it meant uh, strategically uh, with respect to World War II, but with respect to global history overall. Imagine if we'd failed and there was no Plan B, so we would not have gone back had D-Day been a failure. And for about an hour on the sixth of June. 10, 11 a.m. on the 6th of June, it was pretty close to failing. We were considering pulling troops off Omaha Beach, which would have meant the invasion 
from my point of view, would have been a disaster and would have failed mm -hmm. pretty close. But no plan B. So if we had not succeeded on D-Day, then we would not have liberated Western Europe. We would not have gone back. And the likelihood would have been that we would have thrown all our resources and efforts into supporting the Soviets, who, there, who began to uh, an unstoppable onslaught um, from the August of 1944 onwards, Operation Bagration, which is actually 10 times the size of D-Day. Yeah. So all of Western Europe would not have been freed. It would have been conquered by um, brutal communism, and we would have a very different world today. Um, freedom would not have... The fire of freedom, the, the fl flame of freedom would not have burned again in Europe, maybe even to this day. Yeah. Uh, it is incredibly powerful stuff to think about. Alex Kershaw, again, the book is The First Wave, The D-Day Warriors Who Led the Way to Victory in World War II. Alex, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. My great pleasure. Thanks. Again, uh, just a stark reminder, a dramatic reminder about the cost of war, even as those dark clouds once again build in Europe. Let us hope and pray that it does not come to that. We've got a link up. To more information about that book and uh, the earlier book we were talking about, the first part of our Throwback Thursday feature this morning, 6,000 Miles to Home, both linked up at our webpage, goodmornings.net. From uh, May of 2019, that segment, uh, the second part of today's Throwback Thursday. And that will finish up our podcast for today. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each day on the show at our webpage, and that is goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, why are there a group of Hungarians playing Indians and appropriating Native American culture in Central Europe? Funny you should ask. Until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow. <laughs>